Okay, two quick things. One, please check out the NPR One app for a great new way to listen to podcasts and all things NPR. And two, if you're looking for some new podcasts, NPR's newest show is designed to give you just that. It's called The Big Listen. It introduces you to new podcasts and gives you the inside scoop on podcasts you already love. Find The Big Listen on NPR One or at npr.org slash podcast. All right, time for the show. Hey, everybody. It's the NPR Politics Podcast. We're back with another episode of Listener Mail. We're going to answer your questions about the issues, the campaign trail, and anything else you're curious about. And yes, there is another debate coming up. We'll have a debate preview episode in your feed tomorrow. I'm Scott Detrow, campaign reporter. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. All right. So two quick things before we dive in. First, we post these episodes on a Monday, but we are taping this on a Friday. So I'm going to say what we say every Friday, and then by Saturday morning, we are like slapping ourselves on the forehead because something always happens on the weekend lately. If big news breaks on the weekend, we're not going to get to it here, but we're going to get to it as soon as possible, maybe even later today, depending on how big it is. So that's one. Two, shout out to the Washington Nationals who were eliminated in a very sad winner-take-all game five last night. I was there. I yelled a lot. You can possibly hear that in my voice today. I can tell you this Mets fan was rooting for the Nationals. I know I got a lot of Twitter hate for that, but, you know, Chase Utley was on the Dodgers, so not happening. Nothing more to say about that. It was sad. <laughs> Absolutely so, nothing. <laughs> into the questions. Uh, we're going to start with a question from Brandon, who writes, I have a question regarding wasting your vote. Once the party nominees became clear, I decided I would not be voting for either major party and would instead vote third party with someone who more closely aligns to my views and values. Since then, I've received an endless flood of comments from people telling me I'm wasting my vote, stealing a vote from someone else, consenting to another candidate, etc. So my question is, are we really wasting a vote if our vote, quote, matters? Then isn't any vote implicitly not a waste? Thanks for your time. I love your show, Brandon. And I'll just say that this is a message Democrats especially have focused on in recent weeks, especially Michelle Obama, arguing younger voters who are worried about Donald Trump. If they don't vote for Hillary Clinton, it's a waste. Danielle, what do you make of all this? Well, this is a complicated question, I think. And I think there are three ways of looking at it, and I will keep this brief. One, there's the economics way of looking at it, which is always the way nearest and dearest to my heart. Of course. A lot of economists will say, you know what? The ROI on on your vote is just never going to be that big. So voting doesn't matter at all. LOL, nothing matters, you know. That was Um, econ jargon for those of you out there. um, ROI. ROI, I apologize. Return on investment. Thank you. Okay. LOL, I think we all get. Right. (laughs) Um, Point number two. (laughs) Point number two. All right. The way that I was coming at this when I initially read uh, Brandon's question is cost versus benefit. Like, Mm -hmm. think to yourself, okay, what are the potential benefits of me voting third party? For example, Jill Stein or Gary Johnson. You know, the potential benefits, okay. I send a message to the major parties, for example, that, you know, you guys just aren't thinking the way that I want. I'm picking these people, too. You feel like you are really being true to your ideals, perhaps. You know, that sorts of thing. But what are the potential costs? Well... You run the risk of being in a group of people who is handing the election to someone you very well may not like mm-hmm. winning the election. So that's another way of put, looking at it is just, all right, what would really make me feel like I had benefited the most the day after election night? Number three, though, is sort of the ethics of it. And I was reading a few articles about this before we came into the studio, and I came across one on Quartz. And there's this guy named Jason Brennan who wrote this book called The Ethics of Voting. And he says this. If voters are smart, they'll vote for the candidate likely to best produce the outcome they want. That might very well be compromising, but if voting for a far-left or a far-right candidate means that you're just going to lose the election, 
then you've brought the world further away from justice rather than closer to it. Interesting. Right. So, so that is a pretty anti-third party take, but that is the take of, you know, it's not voting necessarily for your number one choice, but it's mm-hmm. voting for the choice that leaves the world least bad. I will say this. Vote for who you want. You know, with this caveat, do you agree with them? Do you understand their positions? When you go up and down the list of the things that they believe, do they believe the things that you believe? You know, now that's to say some people will also vote strategically. And there is some ethical value in figuring out strategically what you want to do. You're talking about Florida, right? Florida was the closest election in not just 2000, but in 2012 when Barack Obama was reelected. Mm-hmm. Barack Obama won by less than 75,000 votes. Now that sounds like, ah, it's a lot of votes. There are 5,853 precincts in Florida. Divide them up, less than 13 votes per precinct. Okay. So we're going to we're going to move on. Brian from Nashville asks, I have a question about demographics. I'm interested in what the white uneducated millennial subset looks like. Do they look more like other white undecided voters or more like other millennial voters? Thanks, Brian. I'll stay away from the word uneducated. And I think what he's getting at is uh, people who uh, have less than college degree. Yeah. You know, that seems to be the dividing line in this country when it comes to education, educational attainment mm-hmm. and which direction that you seem to lean. I'll say millennials, while they're also seen as leaning pretty heavily toward Hillary Clinton and 18 to 29 year olds voted pretty strongly for Barack Obama. When you break that down by race, white millennials lean Republican. And went for Mitt Romney in 2012. And went for Mitt Romney in 2012. So when you go to an even smaller funnel of whites without a college degree who are millennials, they move more so conservative. Mm -hmm. However, I mean, what I would say is I reached out to a place called Circle there at Tufts University. They study millennials and they gave me some numbers that are about to come out. So this is fresh, everybody. Exclusive. Um, I know. Um, So what they found is that white millennials who have graduated high school or less Mm -hmm. as their level of education, about 45 percent of them among likely voters say they are going to vote for Trump. Twenty five point seven say they're going to vote for Clinton. Mm. Now, that's um, data. Yeah, that's, a you know, so about a 20 point gap. Meanwhile, go to the other end of the spectrum. College grads, 45 percent say Clinton, about 29 percent say Trump. So look at that split. So about a 16 percent gap. Mm -hmm. So you see the same sort of split among white millennials that you do among the broader white population. However, it looks like it might be to a lesser magnitude. Millennials as a whole are more likely to vote Democrat than Republican. And so like the, the gap between Trump and Clinton among the less educated millennials Looks like it could be smaller than it would be among, say, you know, white people over 65. And, and I'll make one last point on the college education, Mark. Most polls are showing that that Hillary Clinton is winning among college educated voters. And this is one of the many kind of demographic trends that have Republicans worried because typically that's a subset of the electorate that Republicans do well in. Mm-hmm. All right. Moving on. We have a recorded question from Jen from Minneapolis. Hey, NPR Politics Squad. I've got a question about poll watchers versus election observers. For months, Mr. Trump has asked his supporters to visit his website and sign up as volunteer, quote, election observers, unquote. Could you explain the difference between a poll watcher and an election observer, their role, what they're allowed and not allowed to do at the polls, and if someone's concerned about voter intimidation, what their course of action is? Thanks so much for putting in the long hours and helping us all get through this crazy political season. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Jen. And you're right. This has been something that Trump talks a lot, specifically when he campaigns in Pennsylvania. And you've got to get everybody you know 
And you got to watch your polling booths because I hear too many stories about Pennsylvania, certain areas. Certain areas. At other times, he specifically talked about Philadelphia. So real quick thing about Pennsylvania that you have to get to talk about this. Um, it's a state that, that goes Democrat every single year for decades now in presidential races. Uh, the polls show Hillary Clinton with a wide lead in Pennsylvania. But Democrats typically win Pennsylvania because they have very big margins in Philadelphia and they do well in the counties around Philadelphia. And then the rest of the state, which is much more rural, goes for Republicans. So Trump has been saying this in Republican parts of the state. Uh, Pennsylvania is one of several states that does allow partisan observers to come and show up at uh, at the polls and, and kind of watch what's going on and make sure that people are actually registered. And in some cases, they can actually you know, challenge the the validity of voters there and make them have to kind of prove that they live in the district. Uh, the one kind of flaw to Trump's big plan here of asking people to sign up is that in Pennsylvania, you have to live in the county of the place you want to watch a poll. So huh. so people from Western Pennsylvania cannot get in their car, drive to Philadelphia and camp out at Philadelphia polling sites. At least they can't do that legally. Legally. Yeah. The background of some of this is that in 1981, the Republican National Committee got into trouble where they had hired off-duty police officers in New Jersey to go and watch polling locations. And they used tactics that the court believed were intimidation tactics. You know, they would pull people out of line or physically be touching people or try to tell poll workers that they needed to do something differently. That means that the RNC is banned from doing that kind of activity. They're mm -hmm. not allowed to do it. Uh, there's a court ruling that the RNC challenged just a few years ago to try to get changed. The court did not allow that to be changed. So they're different than the Trump campaign, per se. Uh, it likely just ap applies to the RNC. But what people should know is that the RNC is doing most of the on-the-ground fieldwork for the Trump campaign. So there is going to be a lot of discussion about this, a lot of watching of the watchers on Election Day, uh, and we just hope that it doesn't get too ugly. I was wondering if what Jen was asking here, she says election observers, and that is the phrase that Trump was using there. However, uh, election observers can also refer to officials from the DOJ mm -hmm. uh, who have gone to states, gone to polling locations to observe what is going on at the polling place. Now, this was because of the Voting Rights Act, yeah. uh, which allowed the DOJ to go in and check out places, especially places with a history of discrimination. Now, uh, because of a recent Supreme Court decision, uh, a lot of this has changed. So I checked into the numbers. It was in a recent Washington Post article. In 2012, the DOJ sent 780 observers to 23 states. This year, they are sending people to five states. The the sort of the um, rules of how this works have changed. However, so those people can be inside the poll polling places and watching what's going on. However, the DOJ also sends monitors. Those people are not in the polling places, but they are sitting there uh, nearby, often in the city in an office somewhere, waiting for any challenges or any problems, and they will show up. Mm -hmm. And if they are invited by the polling officials to come in and check out what is going on. Great question, Jen. Thank you. Kyle is up next. Kyle writes, hey, folks, I'm a college student and recently volunteered to phone bank for the Clinton campaign. After two hours of talking to answering machines and Trump supporters, I left wondering if I actually did anything useful or if it was just a huge, huge, he writes, waste of everyone's time. You can't say huge without saying huge at this point. <laughs> My question, what's the point of phone banking? Why do we do it? And does it work? Love the show. Love y'all. Kyle. 
Uh, I can take a crack at this unless either guys are. are it sounds so old fashioned, phone banking. Phone banking, yeah, but mm-hmm. no, it's actually. With landlines. It actually plays a huge role, and it's beginning to play a huge role right now as states begin early voting. This is the point in time where campaigns take all that information they've been collecting from this phone banking, from checking in with these voters, and put it in the action. Because they basically want to know who they need to bother and who they don't need to bother as voting appears. They need to know, is this person definitely supporting us and definitely showing up no matter what? Is this a person who's definitely going to support us, but we need to kind of nudge a little and check back in with and say, have you voted yet? Have you voted yet? Hey, we'll take you to the polls. Vote. Or someone who might support, but they need a bit more information. So they're basically doing everything they can, whether you realize it or not, to learn information about you, you know, what your hobbies are, what you're interested in, what issues you care about, so that they can contact you in the right way to make sure that they can convince you and get you to the polls. So phone banking plays a big role because you talk to Trump supporters. The campaign knows at that point, all right, this guy's definitely voting for Trump. We don't need to check in with him anymore. We don't need to make sure he's voting if he's going to vote against us. I think the point is the more voter contacts, yeah. the better. That's yeah. why the campaigns track these things. They try to make sure that they have as many voter contacts as possible to try to remind people to get out and vote. Thank you, Kyle. Uh, another recorded question. This is from Nate. Hey, y'all, this is Nate Burke from Washington, D.C. When I was a freshman in college, I had a class where we were analyzing political ads. And one thing the professor told us is that when there's a negative campaign ad, the candidate who it is meant to support will say, I approve this message at the beginning of the ad. And then it goes into the negativity so that you're not psychologically connecting that negative feeling to the candidate, then saying their name and that they approve. And then the opposite is true for a positive ad. They'll say at the end of a positive ad, I approve this message because they do want you to connect that candidate to the positive feeling you're having. So I'm wondering, is this a thing? Um, Does it matter where the approval message goes? And if so, what does that mean about the Donald Trump ad that you all played for us, where at the end of a negative ad, at the end, he says he approves the message? Thanks so much. I really love the show. Okay. Well, it means well, he's standing by it is what it means. <laughs> it means that there is no like forgetting who delivered this message. And Donald Trump has upended a lot of the normal ways that things are done in this campaign. And when Donald Trump played that stamina ad and showed Hillary Clinton falling into the van and decides to say, I'm Donald Trump and I approve that message, that means he approved that message. Nate is by and large right about this, that, that typically when it's a negative ad, you see the approval at first. But I have noticed that Hillary Clinton approves a lot of her ads at the beginning whether they are negative about Donald Trump or positive about her. So it's all being upended this year. Right. The thing about, you know, I'm so-and-so and I approve this message, that can go wherever in the ad. However, there are provisions that mandate that you have to have that in the ad. It just doesn't matter where it goes. But there's also that that sort of screen you see at the end of any ad with like the Trump-Pence logo or the Clinton-Kane logo that says paid for by so-and-so. That has to be at the end of the ad. It has to be on the TV, clearly readable for at least four seconds. So Mm -hmm. these things are very clearly regulated. All right. Thanks, Nate. Next up, Jerome from France. He writes, I was wondering as a foreigner if it's considered normal in the U.S. that the incumbent president now devotes a couple days a week to the current campaign when he could use his time managing the country's affairs and working on his presidential legacy. Is this something that's criticized? There are some rules being discussed to prevent the sitting president from getting involved in a campaign in which he's not running himself. Thanks. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Jerome. Well, as far as the a sitting two-term president uh, campaigning for their party's candidate, it just hasn't come up that much yeah. because this makes Barack Obama unique. For example, you think about 
uh, George W. Bush. He didn't end up campaigning for McCain because uh, Bush was kind of persona non grata. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill Clinton likewise didn't campaign for Al Gore. He, Bill Clinton, having suffered a bit of an embarrassment in the White House from a certain sex scandal. Uh, and Domenico knows a bit more about this as well. You've reported on this, right? I will say it's, there are no rules about it. And there are there are more questions, frankly, that come up when a sitting president is running for reelection and they're using Air Force One to get around on campaign events and how they split that money out. Um, but it's been a quite a benefit, frankly, for Hillary Clinton when you have a sitting president who's got more than 50 percent approval rating. But in, in terms of the rules, it's interesting because up and down at every single level in politics, there are so many hard rules about not combining public resources from your official office with campaigning. Right. But when it comes to the president, it seems like those rules are really blurred just due to the fact that this person is president 24 hours a day and can't say like, hey, I'm going to take Saturday off to do some campaigning. So, you know, when Obama flies around on Air Force One, there is some sort of campaign reimbursement for the flight, but that only covers a tiny, tiny fraction of the cost of flying that plane around the country. But that's why he has the plane, because he can fly and do a campaign event in Cleveland and sit in the little cushy office in the front of the plane and do all of his president work on the way there and back. Up next is Rachel. She writes, hey, y'all, considering how politically polarized our country has become, I get nervous thinking about our ability to unify after the election. Us too, Rachel. I'm guilty of engaging with online communities that are at best homogenous and at worst dismissive and stereotypical of the other side of the political spectrum. How do we start the conversations that might lead to a more compassionate, level-headed and unified electorate? I refuse to believe that it's impossible. Thank y'all for the hard work you do. My husband and I love listening to the podcast. Thank you, Rachel. This is a really important question. Unfortunately, I don't think there's a clear, concise answer, but what do you guys think? Step one, get out of those online communities. Get out of them and tell all your friends to as well. Does that include listening to a podcast online? No, because like, (laughs) (laughs) no, because we're great. Uh, No, because um, I mean, there is compelling research that shows that people who uh, that engaging in especially very far polarized ideological sites, you know, that are very far right or very far left, really can and does polarize people. I mentioned this study in an earlier podcast, um, but it is a recent one that shows that the spread of the internet in parts of the U.S. coincided with a growth of affective polarization. That is thinking worse things about the other side, about disliking the other side politically. And the idea is that when you get the Internet, you suddenly have this opportunity to engage into and really just sort of settle into this corner of the Internet that totally fits your point of view and you never have to leave it. uh, And therefore, you don't have to engage with anything else. Mm -hmm. That very potentially leads to much higher polarization. So uh, find new online communities that you disagree with, perhaps. I'd say, you know, a few things. Have an open mind. Try to be reasonable. Allow yourself to believe facts that can change your own predisposed ideas. Um, Try to walk a mile in someone else's shoes. Understand that we're all um, products of our upbringings and be honest, be conscious about your own biases. I agree with that. And the one thing I would add is that I think a lot of the, I was thinking about this this week, and I think what a lot of this comes down to is an inability, people seem to have lost the ability to assume the best of the people on the other side. Absolutely. I, I believe that everybody, people very much have a knee-jerk reaction to assume that you believe that because you are mean or you believe that because you are stupid. And both points of view are equally at fault on that particular thing because I see this and we all see it when we share things online specifically about voters we interview. 
just the the hateful immediate snap judgments that that come back in our Twitter feed about the person that we quoted or interviewed happens all the time and it's really dispiriting and also you know the the reporters who are out covering the campaign trail from NPR by and large we're we're, we're sticking with one campaign or the other so when I'm out I almost always am with Donald Trump uh, Tamara Keith is almost always with Hillary Clinton Sarah McCammon so on and so forth mm-hmm. at the times when we've kind of switched and covered the other uh, campaign for one day at a time like I went to a Tim Kaine event last week. It is like you are in an alternate universe. The people care about different things. They focus on different things. They're talking about a totally different election. And it's just kind of mind-blowing and depressing. But it's, it's a reality right now. I would add one more thing, which is it's not just niche media culture. There's also the big sort. The idea that people are just living with living next door to people that they are very much like. You live in a community with lots of other college-educated people. Your house is an expensive house. And amazingly enough, the other houses on your block are also expensive. So you're living next to a bunch of rich people. There's this idea that people are just not living next door to and therefore not interacting with people that they might disagree with or people who are who are even just vaguely different from them. And therefore, when you don't see enough perspectives, once again, you lose that sort of empathy. So that was kind of a downer question. And we are going to end on an up note. This is from Melissa in Canada. And it's not really a question, but a really nice email to all of us. Uh, Hi, all. As a neighbor, she puts you in parentheses, of yours to the north, I must admit that I have at times had a slight sense of schadenfreude as your political culture has become more and more bombastic. But while it makes for entertaining news, I wish more than ever I could reach across the border and remind you of what a terrific nation you are. In my view, you have achieved so much and not because of the few you elect and lead your country every four years, but because of the many who are leaders in their communities every day. I thought this video and initiative captured exactly that sentiment, and I hope it brightens your day. From Melissa. Thank you so much, Melissa. That was really nice. Canada's a really great place, too. Um, (laughs) This is just fulfilling stereotypes. Everybody Everybody thinks the Canadians are nice, lo and behold. All right, so this video, I haven't seen this video yet, but you guys have. We should explain. It's called TellAmericaIt'sGreat.com. You can find this video that begins with a message on the screen that says, a message from Canadians to our American friends. Hi, America. What's up, America? Hey, guys. We're just up here in Canada talking about how great you guys are down there. And we thought we'd just send you a little bit of a love note. We're big fans. We like you guys. We know you've got some really big decisions to make. But as you're thinking about your future, we just want you to know that you guys are great. You really are great. You invented the internet. You guys are going to get humanity to Mars. Your national park systems protect some of the most beautiful places on Earth. All your diversity and all your openness. The fact that you're such a giving nation, over $250 billion a year is donated to charities. So wonderful and warm and accommodating. When things are tough, you fight to make them better. The disability rights movement in America is amazing. You are infectious, entertaining. Your gift you're to the good enough. Of- you're smart <laughs> enough. Thank you, Canada. You dream big. Your quest to be the best creates the best. A land of opportunity. That was nice. I mean, it is a little bit of a, like, semi-endorsement for Hillary Clinton, given that it's, like, tell America it's great, meaning America doesn't need to be made great again and keep America great. But I'll take the good feelings. I think it was nice. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, on that happy, optimistic note... We are going to end the podcast. So that's all the mail for now. A reminder, you can write us your questions or record them and send them to nprpolitics at npr.org. We read it all. And even if we can't reply, hearing what you're curious about informs our work. So thank you so much for all those notes we get. 
Look for us in your feed tomorrow. We'll have an episode previewing Wednesday night's third and final presidential debate. And as always, we'll be back in your feed the morning after the debate to talk about it all. I'm Scott Detrow, campaign reporter. I'm Danielle Kurtzleben, political reporter. And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. Podcast.